Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible therapist, Sylvia Dudkevich. Hello, Sylvia, and welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about love and psychotherapy. And for those that don't know, Sylvia Dutkevich is the president and founder of the Critical Therapy Institute. A trained psychotherapist, she created Critical Therapy on perceiving a need for the theory and practice of psychology to reflect how race, class, gender, and religion intersect with psychological conflicts. She is a founding board member of Black Women's Blueprint and a member of the Physicians for Human Rights Asylum Network where she conducts psychological evaluations documenting evidence of torture and persecution for survivors fleeing danger in their home country. Dukevich has a master's degree in social work, another master's degree in psychology, and a bachelor's degree in religious studies and political science. How are you today, Sylvia? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm super well and I'm super excited. Thank you so much for coming on. There's so many things I want to talk with you about. And I think we should start out with critical therapy. And I'm curious how it all started. Well, you know, it's critical therapy is a product of many years of being a therapist and the limits of psychotherapy as I've learned it, as most of us learn it. It started working out in domestic violence shelters and counseling women who have been, unfortunately, most of them were women who have been abused by their partners and realizing that psychotherapy does not do a good job in analyzing power dynamics in relationships. So, you know, usually empowerment means you have power over someone rather than empowerment means having power and a responsibility to someone. So, you know, I, I say I created critical therapy. I think really critical therapy was created me in collaboration with the people that I saw for therapy and all the people that sort of have been teaching me all my life. And how we're different is in, you know, three major ways. The first one is this deep analysis of power that comes in the consulting room, uh, power as it comes in the therapeutic relationship and power as our identities come into play as we sit across from each other, our power inside and outside the therapeutic world. The second one is that we believe that the psychotherapeutic relationship is one of the most intimate relationship you end up having with someone. I'm sure we could talk about that since your podcast is all about love. The third is that the personal is political, meaning that issues around workers' rights, gay rights, maternity, paternity leave, and so forth interact and affect one mental, one's mental health in a very real way. And the last one, which ended up being one of the most controversial ones, which I didn't think it would be, but I was naive maybe, is that we practice a politics of equity. What we mean is that everyone who comes to critical therapy pays according to their income and resources. So it's the same percentage for everyone. So this way, 
it's equitable and also it allows therapists to have a comfortable life and it allows everyone from all walks of life to, uh, to have access to good quality psychotherapeutic services. So do you have billionaires paying you hundreds of thousands of dollars? <laughs> Not yet, but yes, we do have a high paying people and we have low paying people and it is possible. You know, it's really interesting because I, I, I started this and I really believed that it could happen. And then I didn't speak about it too much because it was, you know, I, you just start and you don't have like people paying thousands of dollars. You're like, okay, it's just a theory. And then it happened. And, and I was actually very pleased because the first high, you know, the, one of the highest paying people at critical therapy wasn't me. I wasn't the first person. And and I felt like I did something right because it's not about me. It's about the theory and it's about something that should work outside of me and my ideals. So I was really proud of that. So it does it can happen. So I'm hearing the three aspects are deep analysis of power, belief that the psychotherapy relationship is the most intimate one, and then politics of equity. Is that correct? Yes. And the personal is political, you know, should be the fourth one or the third one, uh, depending so on, you know, if you look at fourth one. Yeah. <laughs> so I said three and you're right. You corrected me. It, it is four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to talk more about that. And I'll just read it, an excerpt from your book where you write, unlike traditional therapy, we invite the political into the therapeutic discussion because we believe that the personal is political and that the consulting room should be a space to analyze how politics influences and affects mental health. By the political, we mean the way power is achieved and maintained in society. For example, how issues around workers' rights, equal pay, LGBTQ rights, parental leave, universal basic income, etc. impact and interact with one's everyday life and mental health. So. I'm curious what that looks like in practice and what is the usefulness of this, of sort of recognizing the power dynamics that come into play? Well, two, there's two points to that. So the first one, the power dynamics and recognizing them and actually addressing them is important to any relationship, right? It's not just about psychotherapy. We, we have not done a good job as a society to really sort of use power in a transformative way because we tend to think of power as something we exercise over someone, something that's bad, coercive. And that's because that's what we see around us. I get that. However, there are other models of power, which is about collaboration, which is about responsibility. So psychotherapy is that place where one can openly discuss and analyze one's relationship to power. And that's as it comes into your many different identities, you know, me as a woman, you as a man, whether you're heterosexual, bisexual, anything in between, all those things impact our place within society, impact our access to certain things. And then the second part is why are workers' rights important? Because you spend so much time at work, for example, because if you don't have if you have very little agency over your schedules and some workers have no agency over their schedule, that does impact how you show up in the world. It does impact your mental health. The precarity of not knowing if you're going to have work in three months, the fact that you can be fired at any moment from a job for no reason, all those things deeply affect your mental health. And and we don't we invited, you know, in the therapeutic space, the truth is it's always already there. I mean, think about, you know, you talk about love and we talk about relationships. Think, think about how those issues of power are always present in your own intimate relationships. 
who works more? Who does the housework? Who, what do you believe in? Your right to an abortion. All those things are present. It's just that therapists haven't really been taught how to engage with them, how to openly address them, and how to question why do we live in a society that sometimes really, well, most times actually, really works against our interests. I'm thinking about how the therapist, Terrence Real, who you probably know, says that when he works with couples, he's dismantling patriarchy one couple at a time because of how those power dynamics that don't create the best society also don't create the best relationships. And I'm curious, yeah, what are some dynamics that you really focus on unpacking in order to serve an intimate, loving relationship. Yeah. And and unfortunately, patriarchy and, uh, you know, consumer culture and all these things deeply affect couples in a negative way. And they're always present. You know, if you're like listening to this podcast and you might be in a same sex relationship, you're thinking, ah, that's probably not about me, but it's, is about all of us, because we live in the in this society and we learn these values or ideology, if you want to call it that, about how we should be in the world. What I've seen for so many people is that we think we believe certain things. We really believe in equal relationship. Let's say you're in a heterosexual relationship and you're married, you have, you know, you're a husband and you, you know, have a wife, everything's great. You and you believe that you're a feminist man, you know, you you really, really adhere to this. However, the way you live your life may not be that way because sometimes our beliefs don't match our embodiment of them. And because some of these patriarchal beliefs, for example, are so ingrained that they show up in little ways. They show up in you maybe not picking up after yourself, you thinking that if you're doing the dishes, you're really helping out rather than I live here, this is my house. So obviously I should be a part of this community. So it gets difficult. and and. The oppression, right, is always already there. We may just not be aware of it. We may not be aware in intimate relationship of how we exercise our privileges. And there's nothing wrong with privilege, just like there's nothing wrong with power. We can't, I can't all of a sudden not be a white lady. I am going to be who I am. However, with that privilege comes a responsibility. So if you're in a relationship, let's say, and again, you're, you know, we go back to the, you know, man, woman couple, and you are a heterosexual male that, you know, yesterday, we just talked about like equal payday, right? That you still make, you know, more than your partner, because you are male, I think women now make 80 cents on the dollar. There's a privilege to that. You can't ignore that, but you could use that. So you could use that in your relationship by contributing more to the expenses. You could use that at your work to make sure that when you hire someone who is a woman, you pay her what you should be paying her rather than think you got a deal because it's a little cheaper and so forth. Yeah, I resonate a lot with what you're saying, especially when you mentioned consumer culture and materialism, because I often do notice and think about how words that we use in capitalism and the market, we talk about in our relationships. Like you might even say, I'm on the market. (laughs) (laughs) But even (laughs) I'm off the market. We're told to like invest in our relationship. And I almost and even nowadays like the apps is almost like shopping, you know, you can you're trying to maximize 
the, the, the best partner you have. And there's, there's also a huge emphasis on like, what are you going to do for me? Like what value are you going to give to me rather than say, what do I have to contribute? So what's some more better alternative? Like how should we kind of reframe our relationships, acknowledging the power dynamics that are in play? Thanks for saying that. Yeah, I, I think the apps have created apps combined with capitalism, this really unhealthy dynamic. Um, even if you end up dating and finding someone on the apps, there's always in the back of your mind this idea of like, is there someone better? And the truth is we don't end up with the people that we end up because it's the best. It's just the best being meaning the right person at the right time. In order to have good relationships, we need to be collaborative. Yet capitalism and our current society, doesn't we, we don't model those relationships. And we don't model them early on in life, right? I, it's amazing to me how we parent. And then all of a sudden, which is power over, do what I say, then, you know, you go to school, you have to follow the rules, you know, you got to get gold stars and be the best, make sure you win. And then all of a sudden, you get to be an adult and people shift that conversation more or less about, well, you should be in a relationship with an equal and find love and learn how to be collaborative. How? You've never practiced it. And everywhere around you, there is this culture rooted in in romance, which again is about selling something, selling a fantasy that real relationships, you know, should be full of romance, gifts and so forth. And, and they're not. Uh, most healthy relationships are sort of, you know, boring, more or less. That doesn't mean you're bored. It just means that there is no drama. Drama is not necessarily a good thing. So the ingredients to good relationships are to really learn how to be collaborative, really learn how to share power, to be very vulnerable, and to really believe the best in the other person. It's, it's really an ethical decision how we should, if we want to have a good relationship and you find a partner that you care about, there'll be moments when they will annoy you. There'll be moments when there'll be, you know, some conflict. The way you respond to that conflict is the decision you make on what type of person you want to be and what type of relationship you want to have. I love that. Most healthy relationships are boring. <laughs> 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 and, what I, and, and just to clarify, what I mean by boring is that they're boring according to our current standards of relationship. They're exciting in different ways. They're exciting because you get to spend years with someone and rediscover them at times, find out new things about them, or really deepen the connection and really feel like you have someone who, who really has your back. But we don't really nurture that. We, there are no romantic movies about that. Most of the romantic w movies are about some conflict. And then, you know, you, you come to your doorstep with flowers and you apologize. And, and, and that's, that's not, that's not conducive to long-term healthy relationships. I said this once said, if you're really good at romance, you're probably not very good at long-term relationships. So I'm hearing learn how to be collaborative, learn how to share power, believe the best in the other person. Are there other tips? Be ready to be challenged and, and be okay with not knowing the answers or being wrong. Sometimes, especially in couples therapy, I say to couples, do you really want to be understood or do you want to be right? Because sometimes we get so much into our own heads and we get so much into our histories and dynamics and so forth that we're unable to hear the other person. 
we're unable to have a conversation. We just want to win. And and being, again, in a good relationship is we win when we both win. If I win and you lose, ultimately, we, bo- we both lost. If one person loses, you both lose. Yeah. I am curious how you do recommend sort of navigating. It almost seems like a very, very murky waters that we're exploring and that no one almost knows what a modern relationship is supposed to look like anymore because it almost can look like anything if we do shed the gender roles, if we do release the idea that this person is supposed to be taking care of the children and this is the person who's supposed to be the breadwinner of the family. How do we, uh, how do we navigate? How do we cut through uh, the complexity? Well, I think we have an opportunity to really create different ways of being in relationships. We have an opportunity to do away with the script. Unfortunately, we say that, and, and this is a good example of how what we say culturally or what we say in theory, we actually don't practice in our own lives. So we say, well, you know, we're going to do away with gender roles. It's an opportunity. We have open relationships. Everything's great. And then because you come to therapy and I listen to the stories that you get to tell me in a very intimate settings, most people struggle with really having that old script in the back of their minds. Think about it. Right. If you're on an app and you like someone, do you text them right away or do you wait? If you go on a date, oh, do I have? Do I let them know I like them? Oh no, I have to be interested, but not too interested. <laughs> we still have those scripts. And unfortunately, not only are they patriarchal, misogynist, and so forth, let's leave that aside for a second. Those scripts do not offer us an opportunity to be present in the moment. When you are, think about it, when you're on a date, especially first date or second dates, how many of us are really present and really authentic in our interactions? Most of us are not. We, we're so rattled in our minds. We're, we're so consumed with, oh my God, what do I do now? What do I say? Did I smile? I don't want to smile too much. Oh, I have to smile. <laughs> I mean, I've heard people tell me, you know, that, that, oh, I have to kiss a girl at the end of the day because if I don't, she's going to think I'm not interested. So it's no longer, and it has never been because we're so consumed with these scripts of what do I actually want to do? How present am I with you and getting to know you? It's more about, am I adhering to this script that is outdated, that doesn't work, but everyone is still following. So we have an opportunity to do something different. So my, you know, sort of my plea to all of you, right? There's one thing you take today is if you're out there dating, try to be as authentic and and as present as possible. And that's how we get to rewrite the script. And that's how we get to have better and healthier relationships because you're actually in them and It's the version of you that's present, not a version of you that tries to become something you're probably not anyway. I love that. That following the social scripts does not offer the opportunity to be present in in this moment. And I almost feel like many people don't want to play this game, (laughs) but they almost feel like they have to. And I'm sort of remembering this story I first heard from Brene Brown, who studies a lot of vulnerability, about a man who came up to her and was like, do you ever study men's vulnerability? And she's like, oh, not so much. And then realized there was a huge gap she was missing. And 
And then she kind of found this basic idea that women complain that men aren't vulnerable enough, men don't show their emotions enough. But then when they do, the attraction drops. In other words, women want the rock stability of the relationship. They want the knight in shiny armor. They want a strong person. So there's almost like a, a chicken and egg here because when I say, oh yeah, let's both go into dating as authentic as, as, authentic as possible. But then if I am authentic in a, in a certain way, it's, it will suddenly shift the dynamic in a way that I don't want the relationship to go. Yeah. What I would say is you think you want that. You think you want the guy who doesn't break down, who's going to take care of you. However, I'm going to challenge all of you and ask you, do you actually want that? Or have you been taught to think that that's what you want? Because, and I've seen this, I mean, I've had patients sitting across from me and we've talked about this idea that I, for example, I wanted a husband who was going to take care of me. And now I'm in this relationship and all of a sudden I'm realizing oh, it just feels like I'm married to my dad. And my dad was sort of like a little bit authoritarian. And I, that's not sexy. All of a sudden, wow, our sex life is not what it used to be because the dating and the excitement goes away. And now you genuinely have to love and be attracted to the person you're with. But you were so consumed with trying to pick someone according to the stereotypes that you never thought that the guy who takes care of you also might be bossing you around. And that's not sexy. So- you know, you, you you say, well, we don't want men cr who cry because men need to be a certain way. Do men really need to be a certain way? Or are we so ingrained in these gender roles that we think that that's what's going to make us happy? But if we actually critically analyzed our needs and asked ourselves, both men and women, what do we want? What makes me happy? I don't think a lot of people out there would be like, yeah, I need a man to tell me what to do because that's going to make me happy. <laughs> Well, just playing devil's advocate a little bit here, some might tune into evolution or evolutionary psychology and explain the basic biology that I'm not I'm not just saying this is what I agree. <laughs> I'm just saying the basic biology that, you know, men create lots of sperm and they're encouraged to be with lots of people to spread their seed and, and women want that security and stability. And there are some that argue that this is the, the natural way of things. And what's your response to that? Oh, there's so many responses to that. First <laughs> of all, this idea that there's something natural in anything that we do these days is, is kind of funny. Also, who writes history? Usually people, the ones writing the history are the people in power. I find it fascinating that, that this work of, you know, men just need to sort of have so much sperm and need to, you know, sort of spread it around. And that's what makes people happy is really rooted, rooted in patriarchy, which is our system and has been our system for so long. So what we know more and more, and research is coming out there, that the way we thought the world works, which is through competition and through, you know, evolutionary psychology has this idea, like everyone has a role and it's like sort of set this way. It turns out to be not always true. Collaboration is much better. That's how societies survive. But aside from that, you know, I don't think it matters in so much as I would ask people who are in highly sort of traditional relationships how happy they are. And we know this because there are studies out there that not surprisingly, people who are people in heterosexual marriages that end up being with um, feminist men who actually help around the house and who believe in equity and equality, 
have better sex lives and they're happy. Same sex couples who share, you know, the burden of childcare equally are happier and have better households. So it's not so, it's no longer, well, would that work? Because we do have examples where it does work and it actually makes you happier and less stressed. But we, I think it's the fear, fear of change fear of what are we losing? And honestly, you know, and you could answer this, right? Because you, you, you are a, you present as a man, I assume you identify as one. How has patriarchy and definitions of masculinity worked out for you and your life? I mean, how happy are you in being constrained by certain, I know it's a leading question, by being constrained <laughs> by certain things? I don't think he, I, do you, I mean, do you honestly feel like, wow, I love patriarchy. It has taught me how to be a man and I'm so happy with the roles I have. Absolutely not. I do absolutely feel that patriarchy hurts everyone and that there is toxic masculinity in our culture. And when you mentioned that traditional relationships tend to be less happy, I was also thinking about how there's also interesting studies that show that androgyny or people that are a little bit more androgynous also tend to have better mental health because, of course, they've integrated both aspects, stereotypical aspects of their being. But that being said, I also feel that like most people don't understand many of the topics that we're talking about. They don't understand the the underlying dynamics at play. For example, like one big idea is performative masculinity and this basic idea that there's no feminine equivalent of emasculating. Right. We, you can hear this song that says, I was born a natural woman, something like that. Right. <laughs> but there's no equivalent for men. And I think a lot of people on both both men and women don't see this and they just see some like a man not do something. And then in their mind, whether consciously or unconsciously, they think of this guy as being less than a man because it is more performative rather than inherent in, in our being. And so then there's that challenge of wanting to put on that performance for others. Yeah, I, I will say that it's really difficult for both men and women to figure out what's natural, right? We are born into a society, we're born into culture, and very early on, we learn how to be performative around gender, right? It's funny, I was teaching a class last night and, you know, we, the topic was, you know, feminist studies and, and how we incorporated in critical therapy. And we were talking about Judith Butler, who, you know, sort of in the 90s came on and said, gender is a performance. And now for some of my students who are younger, I felt like, yeah, okay. Whereas back then it was sort of revolutionary. So I do think we've come a, <laughs> some, some way along the way. And I don't know if a long way, but we've come along. And Unfortunately, because of that, everything we learn is through a culture that's very restraining and very constraining and, and, and teach. And even the fact that you have to decide early on, are you a boy or a girl? And if you're a girl, this is how you should act. I, I see the most policing of gender at playgrounds. If you ever want to know where we learn these things, <laughs> go to a playground. Both parents, both kids, everyone's doing it. And sometimes they're doing it. I don't think they're even realizing that they're doing it. That's that's the sad part. Yeah. I'm hearing you saying that we've come a long way and I want to see how far along we've gone. <laughs> and then almost what you kind of see in the future. You mentioned who writes history, you asked. And something that always gets me about psychology is that it seems to have been invented in the 1920s by some European guys. <laughs> You're talking about Freud and Jung and Piaget and 
always there's been some implicit bias around cis male whiteness and only, you know, in the last few decades, you know, homosexuality and gender dysphoria were taken out of the DSM. And I, I come to this from an Eastern contemplative background that has looks into yogic and Buddhist history of, of theories of mind and self that have been around for thousands of years. So it surprises me in that respect. But I'm curious your experience in the field of where we've got, where we've been, where we are now, and where you see things going. So to your point, you are correct. I think psychology or better yet healing has always been around. Maybe it wasn't the way we experience it today, but, you know, in ancient societies and not so ancient societies, think about, you know, religious leaders. Sometimes they're healers, right? Because people go and talk to them about their problems. And, you know, we, we don't acknowledge that, right? And I also understand that for some folks and most of us, mental health is an issue and it's just as important as physical health. So I don't want to dismiss it that talking to a friend is the same as going to therapy. That's not true. However, psychology, as we know, it has been used by the powers that be to control people. This is one of the reasons why critical therapy adapts, adopts rather and takes a lot of theory from liberation psychology. So liberation psychology comes out of Latin America. Think about Martin Barrow, who talks about that for so long, psychology has been used to accommodate people to oppressive systems. And this is one of the reasons why when you go to to a psychologist, a social worker, a therapist, and so forth, our schools don't really do justice in teaching us how to engage with people and with their oppressions in a way that they start questioning the status quo. More often than not, our job has become to accommodate you to your situation. You know, to go back to to our conversation around the political, let's take workers' rights. You come into my office and you say, you know, I've lost my job. I've got fired yet again. A good therapist will analyze how does this interact with your family dynamics, your history, your personality, and so forth. Very good. That's psychotherapy 101. However, for us at Critical Therapy, that's just the beginning because there's another layer to it, which is how does the fact that we live in a society that you're so disposable impact your mental health and the fact that you lost your job? And what can you do once you realize you're not the only one? This is not because your mom hit you. It is related to that fact. And maybe it's the way you show up at work that we need to work on so you're more, you know, sort of conducive to collaboration, for example. However, that's just part of the story. We also need to incorporate how you can actually be part of a change that will ask better working conditions, better rights so that you're not as disposable, that your job is now so precarious that you go to work and that at the end of the day, you could lose it and not be able to pay your bills. It sounds very like an integrative approach. I don't know how you might call it, but one that obviously includes the environment, includes the world one lives in rather than simply the psychodynamic effects that are at play. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that in social work school that we always talk about meeting the person where they're at, person in the environment. It sounds very nice. And, 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 you know, I'm a social worker, right? So I know social workers are 
good people that want to help people. However, I don't think we're given the tools to do that in a very really real and meaningful way. What we often mean by that is, oh, we're going to incorporate the fact that you're, you know, sort of you have many different identities and mention them, check, 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 and then move on. But we don't actually engage with ways that those identities impact the way you show up in the world. So I'd love to bring love into it. And to this idea, I'm thinking about Carl Rogers' unconditional positive regard versus how therapists are often supposed to be impartial. But what is the connection between love and therapy and healing? I believe that love is the ingredient, one of the many ingredients of psychotherapy. I think we ultimately love our patients, right? We spend an, an amount of enormous amount of time with them. We we get to see parts of themselves and they get to see parts of ourselves. We we exchange so much tenderness and so much loving, yet you are correct. Most psychotherapists shy away from the word love. First of all, I don't think any therapist is really objective. What I mean by that is somehow our politics are always already present in the room. We may not talk about them, but the fact that we don't ask questions sometimes reveals who we are or it aligns us to the status quo. So therefore, you know, and, and also love is not a bad thing. Um, yet I know that most therapists shy away from it because again, our society does not offer us good examples of love without romance, love without sex. I mean, I've talked to various therapists where, you know, we, we talk about, do you love your patients? I'm like, yes, but love, what does that mean? You know, I don't sleep with them. I remember this story. So I was, I, I went out for drinks with one of my friends and, you know, he's, he's a psychologist actually, and he was a therapist and I don't know how we got to it. And I said something like, you know, psychotherapy is the most intimate relationship you end up having with someone because you get to know so many things about the person, the person gets to know certain things about you and so forth. And then, you know, he turns around, it's like, but you don't sleep with your, your patients. I was like, <laughs> right. Because love does not have to equal sex, but we forgot that along the way. We, we don't have, we don't have good examples of mutual aid. I don't know how anyone could spend so much of our lives and enter into having the privilege to enter into someone's life in such a unique and personal way and not love our patients. But I'll tell you this. I was not, you know, I sound so nice. Everyone's like, wow, that sounds powerful. Sylvia, you're great. I have to own up to the fact that I struggled for some time with my own definition of how do I tell my patients I love them. And it was one of my patients who really challenged me because, you know, she would come to therapy and she would say, I love you. And I would say, I deeply care about you because I was very, I was a very good traditional therapist. And then she said to me one day, how come you never say? It? So I had to go home and think about that. And, you know, as you can tell, I am a bit of an overachiever. So I started reading all the articles I could on psychotherapy and love discovered that most people talk about romantic love, talk about boundaries, talk about what not to do as a therapist, how not to engage in uh, re sexual relationships and so forth. We don't actually have good research or a lot of research on love in psychotherapy and how we love our patients. And then I went back and I, you know, finally after, you know, I've spent years with this woman, by the way, uh, I did tell her, you know, that I loved her. And she said to me, Wow, I knew you were so uncomfortable because for the first time when you said it, 
you know, he said, I love you. And you didn't allow for the usual, what does that mean to you? How does that feel like? She's like, you were like, I love you. And this is what it means. (laughs) (laughs) Since then, I've become much more comfortable to tell my patients that I love them when I do. I, I don't think therapists should ever fake anything because our patients know us and they know when we do fake it. I also think that healing happens through an interpersonal relationship because the wounds that we've suffered, right? The wounds that bring us to therapy. I know you think, well, I'm going to therapy because I'm depressed. Correct. That is the symptom. However, underneath that symptom, it might be an emotional rejection. It might be the fact that your parents couldn't parent you the way they they should have and so forth. So our deep Wounds are interpersonal wounds. They happen in relationships. They happen through a deprivation of love. So obviously, love has to be the ingredient that will help us heal. I love that. (laughs) And I'm curious if you do have a definition or a concept of how we might think of love for one another, or perhaps just from therapist to client or client to therapist that doesn't include romance and sex as part of it? I think of love, I actually think that therapy has taught me how to love and it's the the most difficult part of love because it's really having a high positive regard for someone and really caring for them, but with no invested outcome. To really love the person for who they're with for who they are, they are, they are, for what they offer when they're with you, but really sort of cherish their personhood, their who they are rather than what they do for you or rather than, oh, what they can give you or your projected fantasy about who they should be. Can we really love another person without wanting anything from them, but just being a witness to their life? I love that. A high positive regard with no invested outcome, a cherished personhood. It's hard. I mean, I I know it because, (laughs) you know, it took me a while. It took me a while to get there. And sometimes, you know, it's easier in some sense when you're a therapist because you're like, well, this is, you know, I'm here for, you know, an hour and I'm invested in this relationship. And then when you go home, you know, you're like, how do I do this with the person that I'm with all the time? Right. How do I do this when you didn't take out the garbage and it's kind of annoying, but you know, I have to remember because we go back to what we talked about. How do I show up? Do I start screaming or do I say, I'm sorry, maybe you actually forgot because I'm trying to be charitable. Maybe you actually <laughs> forgot to take out the garbage. And if you didn't, that's okay because that's not why I love you. I actually love you because of who you are and the moments that we spend together. Earlier, you were talking about the how easy it is to step into roles and scripts. And I'm wondering if you feel that a shift in relationship between it's easy to think about you, the therapist, being the fixer and the client being the fixie or you being the healer and the client being the healed. But once you do sort of bring this loving into such a relationship, do you feel those roles and those scripts shift at all? Not so much. I don't, I don't think I'm the fixer or the healer. I think healing happens collaboratively. I think my job as a therapist is to ask the right questions. That's why I went to school and that's what I've learned, how to pick what's relevant in your script and where are the inconsistencies. And your job as a patient is to answer them because and to really reckon with those answers. Our patients are always 
experts in their lives. And I really believe that. I'm an expert in figuring out what are the right questions to get you to where you want to go, wherever that is. So it's always a collaborative process and the love ingredient helps that collaboration go deeper. I'd love to shift to think about love as a transformative force in a more global sense. I'm curious what you think about the quote that justice is what love looks like in public. Or when you do think about these power relationships, these unequal relationships, what role do you think love might have in the healing of our world? Excellent question. Thank you for asking it. I think love is definitely an important ingredient to healing the world. However, love would just words is empty, right? I think it's important that we remind ourselves that if we make a commitment to love the world, to love other people, especially people who are different than us, the question becomes, how do you show up? How do you actually embody that love? How do you take action? You know, for example, you can say, well, I love women and yet not go to a women's march to support them. So I I challenge everyone who wants to heal the world through love because it's a lovely idea and it's a great idea, but it's empty without the action. What is it that you're actually doing to actually show that love and to change someone's life for better? So what are some actions? Okay, I wake up tomorrow. I want to love the world, change the world. What's some actions I could take? They're very individual. I, I, I'm not one of these people that believes that our liberation will, will happen through a revolution. I actually believe that our liberation will happen through small acts. I think most of us think of changing the system, changing other people, changing ourselves. We're, we're going to be totally different people. We're going to go to the gym every day and all of a sudden we're going to have a different body. That doesn't happen. It doesn't work like that in anything. The real change, lasting change happens very slowly and it happens in small cracks. The way that you, you know, for example, you have a coworker who, you know, makes less money than you and, you know, you go to work and you bring them a coffee. When you go out for dinner with your friends, you know that they, let's go back to this money thing, they make less because they have a shitty job or they lost their job. You pay for dinner. You give money to charity or you give money to someone on the street for no reason except that they're poor. You have, you know, you, you go to a soup kitchen for Thanksgiving instead of spending it at home. There's so many little ways that ultimately will change our society. And yet we don't focus on that. Most of us don't even focus on ourselves. We always focus on how other people need to change. Right. And what do I need to do? And we always want these grand gestures because again, it's like, it's, it's, it's a lot of work every day to show up differently, every day to critically look at your life. So I'm going to go back to your question and ask you, where are things or what are some of the things in your life that you like to change? And what can you do that's one minor thing that may make a difference? I don't know the answers, remember? I really believe that. I do (laughs) think you have the answers. My question to you is, where are those things that you see things that you don't agree with or that you could be a voice or you could just do something different that will make a small change? Well... I'll answer your question rather circuitously because earlier when you were mentioning consumer culture and how it's permeated much of our lives, I often think about how that has permeated our relationships and how holidays and anniversaries and birthdays and every important event is now signified through gifts, through 
going to Amazon, <laughs> clicking some buttons and getting some things shipped to you that you then wrap. That's been a huge thing I've recently have been thinking about is how can we make Christmas, Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, not another opportunity to just buy something that we then give to someone, but to create moments and memories that left, last a lifetime. And now that we're talking about seeing love as action, that's something I, also, I often love to think about as well and really resonate with that gift giving is just one of the five love languages. And in a consumer culture, it becomes almost people's only love language. And how that gesture of like, you did something bad, so I'm going to buy you some chocolate and flowers to make up for it versus showing up, showing up in the world. And I do think of my teaching and my work in the world as simply meant to bring more love into it because we do live in an individualistic, materialistic, isolated, and atomized society that any small connection that we can make with anybody through action, as you mentioned, is so crucial. A number of episodes ago, we had Sonia Leobomirsky on here. I don't know if you know her. She's done a lot of studies into kindness and altruistic acts. And she was saying how acts for others creates more happiness in our lives. And a lot of it is because it's almost impossible to be kind or even altruistic without also creating a connection with somebody. <laughs> like maybe an anonymous letter or something. But if, yes, as you mentioned, you go to the soup kitchen or you give somebody money or you cook a meal for a friend or you take a sad friend out for dinner or something like that. Any kind act is most likely going to connect you to another human being. And as human beings, we're social beings and we need that social connection to thrive and to be happy. So I think that might answer your question, but it's also a lovely inquiry too. <laughs> so as we're winding down, I do have to finish by asking you the question I ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Love is about how you show up. It's an action. It's not just about how you feel. I think we we often mistake the fact that we have these feelings, which sometimes could be appropriate, sometimes could be inappropriate, as if somehow that's just it. And especially when we think about love, we don't think of love as an action. We don't think of love as ways we show up. How do we show regards for someone? How do we help someone? How do we divorce love from romance? Love could encompass romance, but that's not the end of it all. And as anyone who has been in a long-term relationship will tell you, you deeply love the person you've spent so many years and has witnessed your life. Oh, how much romance, the way we've been taught to think about romance is there. It's romance in the sense of, oh, wow, you're home. I want to tell you this thing because I know you'll get it. Or I want, I want to talk to you because you'll make me laugh. But it's not the flowers, it's not the gifts, and it's not the bubble baths. <laughs> it can be, but <laughs> I was going to say, I don't want to write off bubble baths, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally get it. And I love it. And I do think that we do need more loving action in the world for justice in the world and also for our most intimate relationships. So thank you so much, Sylvia Dutkevich, for coming on to the show. For our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? 
They could find me at criticaltherapy.org. Also, I am on Instagram, but as you painfully know, my name is so difficult to figure out. <laughs> so on our website, there's a link to an Instagram account, which is my account. If you want to get in touch with me personally, we did this because we knew otherwise it would be impossible for anyone to find me. And you were born in Romania, if I'm not mistaken. Where are you now? Right now, I am in uh, Jackson Heights, New York. I'm in my queen's office. But yes, I was born in Romania and I came here when I was 13 years old. Wonderful. Glad to have you here and both here so I can we can chat and here doing this amazing work that it is that you are doing. So thank you so much for coming on to the show. And thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember all of the valuable lessons that Sylvia shared with us today, including the four, not three components of critical therapy, a deep analysis of power and acknowledgement that the psychotherapeutic relationship is an incredibly intimate relationship, the personal is political, and the importance of equity. It's true. In the past, psychology used to accommodate people to oppressive systems, and it is still healing from that. In our own relationships, wounding happens in relationships, so healing must happen through those same interpersonal relationships. Love can include a high positive regard for someone with no investment in the outcome. And love with just words can feel empty. So it is more about how you can actually show up and embody that love through action for yourself, for others, and the world. If you want to learn more about me, you can go to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Sylvia. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for engaging with me in some of the questions and answers. I appreciate that. I love the, I love the questions back. That was beautiful. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 